Good morning, fish keepers. Cam here from the fishroom.co.nz. I hope we're all well and dandy. We've done it. We've made it to Friday. Let's get some coffee in us. Good times. All right. Well, that's pretty good. We won't muck around too long because we have ourselves a guest sitting in the back area waiting for us. Let's push some buttons. Good morning, Sandy. Good afternoon. Good to yeah. see you. Cool. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. I'm, I'm well aware that you're a very busy individual and have plenty of stuff on, so it's um, I'm really grateful that you said yes to coming on and having a wee chat to us. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much. Cool. Um, so first of all, how did you get into keeping fish and aquariums? Oh my gosh, it started at a, at a very young age. I was uh, maybe kindergarten. Kindergarten, I think, wow. is when I got my first... I got my first um, little, I got my first little fishbowl and I got mm -hmm. a little albino Corridoris from the discount store Woolworth, which is very interesting because they were supplied by Tampa Livestock, which is only five miles up the road from me. Um, wow. So, you know, it, it's, it's interesting how, how that one little fish started my journey. And then when I was 10, I started collecting native snakes, corn snakes and, and uh, milk snakes and king snakes here and, and sold them to the local uh, fish farmers who sold them as pets up the road. So I, I sold yep. them for $5 a foot. So natural born entrepreneur, smart <laughs> <laughs> enough to, um, to be afraid of, of snakes. But, um, and then, and then, you know, and I've been around the industry. My mom worked at fish farms. She worked for Ross Sokoloff and then she worked for Elwin Seagrass. And so it was kind of natural that when, uh, when I was ready to start earning money, I started making boxes for him and cleaning aquariums and things when I was 14 and um, did those things during the summer, during during high school. And then after after uh, going to school and going off uh, for, you know, a little while away from the uh, from the aquarium world, from fish farming world, I wanted I knew I wanted to be a businesswoman. Um, so I went and worked in that world for a while and then came back to the animals because that's really working with animals is very satisfying to me. So I started back here um, 33 years ago as wow. the um, uh, secretary to the bookkeeper. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's quite interesting the amount of people we talk to and they start with just this one very simple fish and it just kickstarts. Mm -hmm their life and their interest in keeping aquariums or aquatic pets or whatever way you want to call it. That's right. Um, yeah, it happens. It's so many of the guests, it's just randomly turned up and all of a sudden they have a fish and now they're where they are in, in their current position. So yeah, it's always a fantastic hearing people's stories on how they how they got involved in, in the hobby. That's a great hobby and great Very people much. in the hobby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you please tell us a little bit about um, Seagrass Farms and obviously your involvement, your role and position and that sort of stuff before we get yeah, to yeah. where we are? So, you bet. Um, Seagrass started in 1962, I believe, uh, uh, as a few aquariums in Elwin's garage. He raised angelfish and sold them to Fred Koshu to supplement he and his wife's um, teaching income. And... Uh, uh, they sold other things than, than fish as well. Back, you know, in the sixties, you could, you could import anything, you could sell anything. So, you know, he did fish and, and ran a little pet store from his garage. So sold, um, um, tarantulas and, and monkeys. And, you know, we could just, we did, 
we did everything. And so um, it grew from that. Fred asked him to raise blushing angels. And that was the fish that kind of got Ellen on the map in the wholesale business. Back then they were worth $50 a piece. That was when they had just, just been created, line bred for that. Wow. And so um, Fred gave him the fish to uh, to breed because he couldn't afford the fish. He couldn't afford the broodstock and he paid him back in fish. And that's very typical for the Florida farming community. We provide mm -hmm. the broodstock for the farmers and then they pay us back in fish if they're successful with them. So um, it grew from that. He joined, he got in business um, within 10 years or so with uh, Ross Sokoloff down in, uh, down maybe 10 miles south of us. They started breeding fish and selling fish to the first major um, pet store chain, first national chain in the United States called Petcoa. And um, the danger in that is having one big customer, right? Mm. <laughs> because when they decide not to pay the bills, the business goes belly up. So eventually Ross and, and Ellen's um, split ways and um, were fierce competitors and great friends from then on. And then I came onto the scene maybe about five years after that and so um came onto the scene and like i said i started as the um uh secretary to the bookkeeper um we started dabbling in chain store accounts and and so my first major account um that was my own was this um little company out of phoenix arizona called PetSmart. When they built their first six stores east of the Mississippi River, they were they were my store. They needed a supplier. And so we grew with them. And then a year later, we started selling to this other small chain in San Diego called um, Petco <laughs> with the same results. Right. And and grew really blossomed from there. And so um, from there, we've grown through acquisition from being, you know, when I came when I came into the business back into the business uh, 30, 30 something years ago, we had maybe 40 employees total. Um, today we have, I have to think about it, I think eight different companies with six wow. different uh, distribution sites throughout the Eastern uh, US and I'm uh, close to 500 employees. Wow. Yeah. That's a huge growth. So, um just because you brought it up and you, you mentioned distribution sites, is that different sort of types of fish, totally different sites, different um, totally warehouses different or how does that? Totally different sites. So I have this distributions that are here, which is just freshwater fish. And I shouldn't yep. say just freshwater fish because there are literally a thousand different kinds of fish out there. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have another wholesale facility down the road from here. I've got another facility in Atlanta, Georgia, another one in um, uh, in Connecticut, and another one in Oklahoma. And so the difference in the facilities is um, is what kind of products we sell. Like here, I just do freshwater fish. Uh, in, my, in Atlanta and Connecticut, we do it's like full line specialty. So freshwater, saltwater, small animals, reptiles, birds, and then in Oklahoma, it's small animal and birds only. And then we also mm -hmm. farm fish. Here in Florida, I've got six farms in this tri-county area where we grow a lot of fish. Wow, that sounds very, very impressive. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Best job ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so when you say you farm fish, do you do you reproduce them? Do you just bring them all in? Is that how does that work, or is it a mixture of both? So it's a mixture of both. We farm we farm some of our own fish. Probably forty percent of what we sell from from of what we sell in freshwater fish are farmed here in Florida. We're in the epicenter of the fish farming capital of, of North America. Um, so there's a hundred farms within fifty miles of us. And wow. so, so we buy from all of those. We buy from our own production, which is maybe ten percent of that. 40%. And then we we import from all over the world. Um, really, it's every continent every week, except Antarctica, of course. Wow. How many uh, fish do you sort of go through or have in your facility um, and say any given week sort of thing? Yeah, we sell about a million fish a week from this facility. Wow. Just from that one facility? Yeah. Wow. That is a lot of fish. It's a lot of fish. It's a lot of fish. Yeah. Um, all, all into the American domestic market, or do you export as well? Um, we we export a little bit, but I probably say that's probably one percent or less of our total sales. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's a that's a. I wasn't expecting to say that many fish. That is a phenomenal amount of fish. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, and you know what's so cool about this is is um. I really literally have a thousand different SKUs of, of fish out in the building and probably a third of that is going to change next week, right? Because diversity, the, the variety is really what drives um, freshwater fish, right? Because it's not about, you know, what do we have that the chain store down the street has? It's what do you have that my, that my neighbor doesn't have and that mm -hmm. I haven't seen in a long time and because mm -hmm. I want to be the only kid on the block, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. Yeah. So from a pure business point of view, how do you keep track of all of that inventory, um, SKU numbers, fish coming in and out? It must be a pretty complex system that you have in, in place. This is me asking for my own personal interest as opposed to where <laughs> I was kind of wanting to go with this. No, it's really cool. So um, we, uh, we de have developed our own, well, created our own applications. We use Great Plains Dynamics, but mm -hmm. it's highly customized to our application. So we keep track of um, which fish go in which tank and who who put them away and who they came from, how many, how many, what kind of mortality I had when they go out to the retailer, who picked them, who bagged them, who boxed them, who drove them. And mm -hmm. then we, we do actual physical inventory once a month because even though we're keeping track of of the movement of all these fish, they're live animals, and they um, sometimes, you know, we are humans, and we over overpick, underpick. Sometimes they jump out, you know. Sometimes, sometimes they pass away, and other fish eat them. So we have to correct that on a regular cadence. Yeah, wow, that's that's mighty impressive. I, I I just stand in front of my tank and count 19, 20, 21, 22, and I'm good to go. But to be dealing with that that volume must be yeah. must be a phenomenal feat. Yeah, it's a really cool thing to watch. It's a really cool thing to watch, and you know, it, we have we have a lot of really interesting processes, like we have um, quality control at the end of it. So it's people who have the visual acuity to tell the right fish in going to the right customer in the right quantity, but they have to be able to like tell what they are, just see what they are, and next and next and next, right? And that's what they do all day. And and those people really are my most valuable people because they're it takes like 10 years to, to learn 
like the standard basic 4,000 species. Yeah. Do you, when you're hiring, again, this is totally off topic from where I was going, when you're hiring, do you hire people with knowledge in fish or do you like general that you can, yeah. They, if they're available, I do, but you know, that's um, not always the case. And with this, this many people that that number of people are just not on the market. So generally yeah. we're hiring people that have no knowledge, but love animals. And then we teach them the, the fish. Cool. Yeah. Um, how many fish, so you see you sell up to a million fish a week. How many come into your facility at any given week? Is it same sort of quantities or? Yeah, same sort of quantities. Yeah. We actually, we're turning over the inventory in this building two and a half times a week. So we're receiving fish every day, except Christmas, of course, but we have, we have fish in the air all hours of the day and night and fish on the road to us and then fish going out from us. Wow. This is blowing my mind. I know, right? What's, what's the acclimatization type system that you run through for all the new, new fish coming in? So um, acclim acclimation here is, is pretty basic. What I do, we do a, um, a 15 minute temperature acclimation right? Because we want to just, just equalize the temperature. We open the bag, we add in some kind of ammonia binding agent mm -hmm. and then let the fish go into the system. We've got, we've got incredible filtration. So within, within, you know, just a few minutes, those fish will be swimming in, in crystal clear water and, and the uh, waste from, from the shipping water will have, will have been gone out through the, through the filter. Cool. So um, and what I try to do is, is only touch the fish once while they're here and that's when we pick them to to go out because every time every time a fish is touched it causes an abrasion so it, it's an area where a bacteria or, or a parasite can uh, get attached yeah that makes sense yeah again slightly off from my original question do you ever sit back and go and just marvel and be sort of mesmerized at what what is actually happening in your facility the amount of fish that are coming in and going out and yeah it, yeah it, it, yeah. In this 15 minutes we've been speaking, I've already had my mind blown several times. It sounds absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> no, it, I swear it really is the best job ever. And, you know, with my job, I'm like, I feel more, um, you know, I'm more of a, a business person than, than I kind of ever thought that I was. And I'm not out in the building nearly enough. And every time I go out there, every time I'm wowed and there's some kind of new fish that I fall in love with. <laughs> it's great. Assuming you've got a, at least an aquarium at home or pepper potted around your offices and stuff like that. No, I we have we have tons of aquariums around the offices, but I travel almost every week, so I I would be a terrible parent right now. So <laughs> when I go into my retirement, uh, <laughs> I'll get back to it. I for a time I was, uh, I mean I I guess we all go through stages of, of which animals we keep, and like my last. Mm. My last fish thing was discus, and I love discus. I love those little pinch brain fish so much. <laughs> and I had uh, I had my um, my garage built out, and I had um, 17 pairs of breeding discus. And wow. because go big or go home, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then you know because they need to be fed four times a day, and I need to do my job. It was just kind of it was I I failed at it. So. My last obsession has been isopods, and uh, wow. so I've got I've got uh, several many um, colonies of those in my bedroom, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. 
And so I'm thinking my next thing might be tarantulas. Okay, cool. We don't have them over here. There's no chance that we can uh, keep them. So you, you can you can have them just fine. Okay. <laughs> um, we just had a quick question from somebody. Uh, can it be hard when you see the fishes come in not to take them home or, or basically put them into your, your aquariums in your office? Yep. Yes. Yes, yep. it is. It yep. is yep. because I really do fall in love with them. And I, uh, one day, one day I'll be able, to, and that's gonna, that's the hard thing is which one is going to be my favorite that day. <laughs> yep, yeah, <pretty> cool. <laughs> um, so how long are the fish normally in your facility for if you're turning over every week and a half yeah, or so? They're generally here 48 hours. Yeah. Okay. There's some fish that will sit on as long as maybe 14 days, but mm -hmm. that is the exception, not the rule. Yeah. Okay. And so in those couple of days that they're with you, is there protocols you run through, health checks, yeah. all that sort of stuff? How, how does that sort of system work? Yeah. So, um, so we have 20, let me think, 28 um, central systems here, right? And the mm -hmm. difference in the systems is the level of salinity that we're running in the systems as well as the system treatment. So we're putting similar fish together, or similar pathogen fish together. So we treat, the, we treat the entire system at once. So we knock off the majority of the external parasites and bacteria before they go out to the retailers. Because we see a lot of things retailers should just, should never have to deal with. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So we're making sure that they get, that they get fed, that they, that they have time to, um, to come out of the jet lag. <laughs> it's, you know, it's traveling by air is hard on fish, just like it is on humans. Yeah. So, so with your salinity is obviously to, to deal with random pathogens and stuff like that. What sort of levels of salinity are, are we talking here? So our salinity uh, varies from system to system. I think the lowest salinity is probably at 1.5 parts per thousand and highest mm -hmm. at six parts per, parts per thousand. So uh, the slightly the hardier fish going into the the more more yeah, salted water, or is it the ones that are more likely to have issues? The salt more, like um, swordtails and platys, uh, guppies tend to really um, appreciate the salt because they're so they're so uh, prone to to getting columnaris, and they're salt tolerant. So we can yeah. put them in there. We also can control diseases with temperature, and we do that with chillers on the system so um we keep the temperatures of of the uh systems at 73 degrees which is just slightly under where the majority of freshwater water pathogens can tolerate oh. conveniently handy yeah do you find um that when your retailers get your fish from you that they have issues going to completely fresh water or is it more of like a salt bath for a couple of days and, and everything's sort of under control yeah. after that yeah, most retailers don't keep don't keep a, a, a lot or any salt in their aquariums. Rarely is there an instance where it's an issue because they're not dealing in the kind of, of densities that we're keeping mm -hmm. at a wholesale level, right? Once you get fish into a pet store and they have they have ornaments where they can you know settle in and and the gravel where they can get comfortable over, right? It's not nearly as stressful as a wholesale facility where you've got 250 yeah. store tails in this tank you know in a, at a retail store you have 
12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally makes sense. Yeah. yeah. You said you had uh, multiple systems running at one time. Do you yeah. only put new fish in when they're empty, or do you just sort of flow them through? Does that make so sense? The way that the systems work, we only put new fish into empty tanks. The yeah. uh, filtration goes, um, the, the filtered water goes direct into the tank, and then the, the, uh, the dirty water goes direct back out to the filter. It's not tank to tank to tank. With you. Yep. Yeah, it totally makes sense. So it doesn't doesn't cross-contaminate or nothing right. anyway through. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we just had a, a quick a comment, not a question. Uh, so I just want to say that awesome work, and when we get to see clips from your facilities, everything looks so professional. The holding tanks, the systems of adding everything looks fantastic. And I would I would have to second that after obviously doing some research prior to, to this um, this event. Um, I've, I've pretty much came up to the same conclusion as well. Everything looks fantastic and, and brilliant. So great work. Yeah, it's uh, always a work in progress, but. Um, yep, I can imagine. Um, how much food do you, do you go through when your fish are with you? And is there a process for that or a specific types of food that you feed? Yeah, we feed, um, I think we've got 24 different kinds of feed that mm -hmm. we feed out. We have one person that that's what they do all day long. Is, Just feed is fish. They feed yeah. and they feed fish. They feed food that are appropriate for the, for the fish. And they feed, if, if the fish need medication, they're feeding that also. And that's done under veterinary care. Yeah, nice. Mm -hmm. Do you have, I'm assuming you'd have bits on your staff to run this your facility or or a similar type status i i'm sorry i didn't understand the question I, I'm, I'm assuming you'd have um, veterinarians on your staff books yeah, yeah. we have veterinarians, yeah. we have veterinarians on retainer who are here um a few times a month and then we have our own lab staff who are formally trained in um in aquatics uh diagnostics so um we can do the majority of our own um fish health work here at this facility we could do our own necropsies and and uh, uh gill cuttings and skin scrapes um do all of that here we can run our own uh, uh bacteria that in the oh my gosh i can't remember the name in the petri dishes to to find out you know the bacteria load in the system um the things we can't do here are histopathology we've got to send that out and then PCR testing, we've got to send that out to you. Um, are you a 24-hour facility? Like lights are on all day, every day? Or is there downtime at night? Well, there's, there's downtime on the weekends. Yeah. On the weekends at night. <laughs> yeah, let's clarify that. Yeah, I, I was assuming that you'd be pretty close to around-the-clock facility yeah. with the amount of stuff that's going on. And, right, and yeah, because we're packing for just-in-time, right? want to yeah. have the least amount of time as possible in the bags when their oxygen is constrained. Yeah. Um, how, how do your fish systems themselves work? Uh, like how many, is there a specific amount of tanks per bay? How does the filtration setup work? Are you running ginormous UV filters or? Yeah, yeah so we've got... We've got yeah. massive uh, fluid bed sand filters, um, mm -hmm. and we have ozone. We have protein mm -hmm. skimmers, degassers, and that actually works because we use enough salt in the fresh water 
that we can skim. Um, yeah, and uh, chillers, um, big mechanical filtrations. There's a couple different kinds we use there. Um, we started off with the big paper cartridge filters, and then we went to floss filters, and now I'm about to transition over to sock filters. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, hearing the word chillers and tropical fish to most people in New Zealand would be seem a little bit weird. Yeah. I'm assuming your ambient air temperature is fairly warm most yeah. of the year around, so you need to bring it down as opposed to That's bring right. it up. That's right. And our and our, our water temperature is warm too, right? Yeah, okay. So, and that's an odd thing, I think, for most people. Our water temperature um, coming out of the well, and we've got our wells are like 500 feet and 800 feet, and the water temperature generally is 80 to 85 degrees. So we've got to, we've got to lower that down. Yeah, yeah, definitely would. That's um, that's get that's getting up there for sure. Yeah. Cool. Uh, disease management medication. You said you've got like um, veterinarians on. Um, I think you said retainer or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that someone's just running through your your bays every day, checking on fish, making sure nothing's going wrong. That's right. um, yeah. So how do you deal with if you do get some sort of an outbreak? Is that can does it not matter that you don't have to close off the tanks because it's running through the yeah, big filtration? Yeah, because it's already isolated. It's already isolated within that tank. And we can, if we need to, I can stop, we can stop the water flow to that tank so we can do a bath treatment. Um, that doesn't, luckily that doesn't happen very often. Generally yes, we're treating yeah. the entire the entire system for something because you know like i was saying like you know we expect it to come in on goldfish or or you know columnaris on libraries it's just like those are just the cost of doing business and so we're treating for that automatically yeah, but yeah. once in a while you do get an outbreak of something something unusual and so you know we involve the vet and and figure out how exactly we're going to treat that and, and how long we're, how long the uh hold period is going to be yeah yeah, yeah. So you do, do a little bit of preventative stuff with, with goldfish and, and live bearers as opposed to, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and I just had a question that's totally just dropped out of my head. Unfortunately, it was starting to do with... More, more coffee. <laughs> yeah, we'll do more coffee. That'll work. And I need to come to New Zealand because I've seen the Emerald Lakes on on the internet. And oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah. Uh, I think I was going with when you were doing uh, medicating tanks themselves and tuning everything off. You guys have a, a lot better range of medication than what we do here. So is your preferred yeah. medication via food as opposed to being diluted? Yeah. So I prefer yeah. to give it to them by food. I find that to be tremendously more effective than yeah. than um, doing a bath treatment always. Yeah. But the trick to that is is the medications are bitter. So it has to be covered covered up with something that's palatable for the fish. Yeah, is that something like garlic guard or something along those lines, or something right. different? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the food companies are using today. Yeah, yeah. but I know for here it is. I think we only have one or two companies in the whole country that will do medicated food because with our with our regulations about about um, fish food or animal food, anytime it's medicated, it has to be absolutely sterilized before before the medication is, is put in, and then everything has to be completely sterilized 
once it's once it's done it's very costly to them and there's not a lot of us that, that do that so um yeah. yeah makes sense um if you're trying to medicate a fish and they're not eating is that mm -hmm. when you go down the the, the bath route or do you try yeah, we'll down the bathroom. I'll even you know i'll try to get i'll try to trick them with um black worms yeah crack worms right yep. Yep. <laughs> Right and and try to try to get the medication down them that way. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, we've had another weird question. Where'd it go? Where did it go? There you go. Uh, what's the minimum salinity level you can run to be running I a skimmer? For a skimmer is two point oh parts per thousand, two point oh or two point five. Cool. Fantastic. Yeah. Right, my list. Um, so in my time of doing some reading and some research on on this coming up i found out that florida's got fairly hard water how do you deal with <laughs> like liquid rock <laughs> <laughs> how do you deal with that when it comes to dealing with like soft water fish that are coming in yeah so um so we deal with it in a couple of different ways so um for all of the fish we bring it up out of the well and and we soften it um, right after we run it through the degasser because our, our uh, well water has is loaded with uh, um, ammonia and mm. um, hydrogen sulfide and so we've got to air all that off because it's really yeah. lethal to the fish and then we run it through a water softener before we pipe it to the building um, once it's up to the building there are some fish will we have another softener um, that's in line with the system. But then um, for fish like for very soft water fish, like the fish coming out of the Rio Negro, we actually do um, an RO blend where it's half RO and half double softened water to get the pH down to 70. Because out of out of the well, it's coming out at like 85, 86. It's ridiculous. Wow. Yeah. Um, we've, we've just had a fellow host jump on. So I'll just bring John up. Great. Uh, John normally normally joins us for these. Um, so can you just sticking on the the theme of the water, mm -hmm. bringing them up from the well, removing the ammonias and the other stuff that's there. Obviously, that's a pretty or sounds like a pretty intense system. Yeah. How does that full system work, and how long does it take from drawing to going into the aquariums, and and do you recycle the water? How does all of that process kind of work? So that's a that's a great question. In Florida, we have on um, with aquaculture, we have our own best management practices for how we for how we handle the water and how we deal with it with the discharge water. So when we bring it up, we're putting it through putting it through the uh, fluid bed fluid bed um, system and through through uh, a degasser, right? And then right to the to the um, water softeners, then out to the system. That whole process maybe takes a minute, right? Oh wow. Yeah, and then it's and then it's going into the systems. We um, recycle about ninety percent of the water that we're using, yeah. and then the yeah. discharge water goes into a settling pond that's right by the property, where it filters back down through the aquifer. Cool. I was, I was going to ask about again, watch your videos, saw some ponds outside, and how that sort of works. So that just leaches back down and then gets drawn back up when you need yeah. it again. Yeah, and that's actually what makes Florida such a great place to grow fish, is because. We're right below the frost belt, so it doesn't yep. snow here, or it hasn't since 1977. And 
I got out of school that day. <laughs> and so like the, the land here was very inexpensive and our water table is only like four feet or so below, below the dirt, below, mm -hmm. below the dirt. And so you just dig a big hole and it fills up naturally with some beautiful, beautiful water. The water, that ground level water tends to have a rather low pH and we have uh, lots of tannins from our live oak trees. So it's great water to raise fish in. Cool. Four feet deep is not very deep to be getting something like that happening. Yeah. <laughs> really, really shallow. Yeah, it's, yeah, we're really on a kind of an island here. Yeah. Um, just when you're saying raising fish, I know we've sort of discussed sort of how many you breed and, and bring up yourselves. Yeah. Roughly how many species are you regularly or actively spawning? And are you spawning them yourselves? Are you buying in eggs or? Yeah, we, we spawn ourselves. So we set up about 10,000 pair of fish a week. Um, we're, it's, I think it's, 30 or 32 species or 32 species. It's not, it's not extensive. It's just those high volume egg layers that we must have no matter what for, for our, for our customers, because yeah. they, you know, they don't care that we had a hurricane. They want the fish. Yeah. 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 So what sort of species would they be? Are they, um, so it's like we're top, selling, top selling egg layers here. So our number one fish in, in the U S by volume is neon Tetris. And yep. then, and then it's just other kinds of egg layers. So head and tail lights and silver tips and tiger barbs and, and other types of barbs, just black phantom, serpes, cherry barbs. So that, that list of fish is about the same as what it is. Yep. Yep. As soon as you see them, like, yep, that, yep, that'll, that'll kind of make sense for, yep. uh, for lack of a better term, the bread and butter fish that are, everyone seems exactly. to have and, and want to have all the time. Yep. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yep. Cool. Uh, cool. We just had a, a question on the floor. Uh, how much of a problem can invasive species in the waterways play over there? Do you, and I'm assuming you wouldn't have issues with them coming into your facilities or anything like that? Yeah, we don't have any problems with them coming into our facilities. And that's actually it's a, such a great question, right? Because that's the reason we we um, wrote the, the best management practices with the, the Florida Department of Agriculture. 30 years ago, because we saw in the 70s and 80s, um, because containment was not addressed by by the department, we saw we saw accidents happen, like those Florida plecos, right? The, the plecos that are originally from Brazil that are in three of our major waterways. Um, with the with the containment measures we have now, fish can't get off the farm more okay. than more than maybe. 50 feet. We're not, none of the farms are attached to a natural waterway or, or the fish can't, even in a flooding event, can't get to, can't get to a watershed. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. That's always a concern. Like, um, I think it might have been 10 or so years ago, there was a big earthquake down in Christchurch and a lot of turtles managed to get their way out. And there's a lot of rivers that are running around the Christchurch city itself managed to get the way into the, into the rivers. And now there's a lot of um, wild turtles hanging around for that reason. So it's fantastic that yeah. even a massive flooding events, what have you, they can't actually get anywhere. Yeah. 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 And actually, cool. so what we do in, a, in the event of a hurricane, and that's a question we get asked a lot, like, what do you do? How do you prevent the fish from getting out? Is we um, pump the, we pump the water level down by 20 inches within two days of the hurricane so that we can take 20 inches of rain and it not create 
even bleeding from pond to pond because of the ponds, if they, if they cross, you've lost all of that production, you know, mm. especially with live bear, you know, you can't, you can't mix live bears without, without there being a problem. Mm. So because we brought up live bears and mixing, and obviously your systems are running on one, how do you go about if fry get out of one tank run through do they just get destroyed if they make it in through the filter system yeah, yeah the, the power filter would just chew them up there's there's a sump underneath and that's where the the discharge water is is sucked out from and occasionally fish do get down into the sump and we have we have cleaning parties every thursday night to get the fish out of there <laughs> <laughs> and uh what do you what do you do with the fish if they when they get through that like they're all, they're all cooked already or you get the old wiggling one still? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they're, if they're down in the sump, we just put them back into regular stock, get them out to their forever home. Cool. Yeah. Uh, one of the videos I watched, uh, I think it might have been when you had Chris Biggs touring with you. Yeah. Yeah. I've been trying very hard to get him on with me. So far, he's been mm -hmm. very elusive, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> okay. Um, you were talking about African cichlids, and there was the four the four fish combo or something along those lines you were talking about. Uh, what are those four fish? And can you explain that a little bit, please? The four fish combos. I don't know what that is. With big uh, four, they were oh, four African cichlids. They were, um, it was yellow, yellow ones, blue ones. Something oh, else, something the else. African cichlids. So that's actually a key, like um, entry level kind of fish here. So historically we, um, our mixed Africans have been kind of this hodgepodge of, of different colors, but, but, you know, we had uh, Venustus in that mix and you can imagine who survived or Venustus and, and Aratus in that mix. And, you know, and, and the zebras just can't, just can't put up with that. And so uh, I changed that mix into a, a, just a four color zebra mix with white, yellow, red, and blue, which is, for an entry level fish keeper, it's a it's a beautiful combination. They're they're hard to kill, which yep, you know, yep, and and they're not, and they're inexpensive. So it's a great way to start a hobby where you have really 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 hard water. Cool, yeah. Yeah. totally makes sense. Um, pricing wise, you say inexpensive. Roughly, what do they cost at a retail point? Obviously, every retailer is going to be charging different prices for yeah, for the they're there and they're so typically in the u.s historically you know and i and i don't know how it is since covid covid kind of changed a lot of things about the live animal trade here but pre-covid generally it was three times three times the wholesale cost because mm -hmm. they've got to cover the cost of freight and generally the cost of freight is higher than the cost of the fish you are so, yeah yeah uh, is that why you've got a couple of different distributions around, just to try and yeah. Yeah. So lower I, the area for people as well? In models, right? So, so we distribute um, fish and, and and small animals and birds on our own fleet throughout the eastern U.S. But I also fly fish across the country on on UPS and overnight courier, as well mm -hmm. as passenger flights. Cool. So, so there's different pricing models uh, yeah. with all those. Yeah. So you've got your own fleet of couriers essentially to deliver your, yeah. your product yeah, yeah our own trucks and our own drivers we've got a hundred a hundred trucks or or so yeah yeah so, wow, so we can control because it's important right because i mm. i 
especially with small animals and birds, we need to stop and check the animals to make sure that they have their, their food and water and they haven't escaped. And that needs to happen every four hours. And that's just not something you can outsource. Yeah, well, um, I, I speak to another aquarium shop on, on a, a basically an hourly basis, but a daily basis. And many times we've spoken about issues within couriers and delays and, yeah. you know, how do you get around that? And that would be providing your own fleet. The New Zealand market is far too small to be able to be doing that realistically. Yeah. But that is fantastic that you've had the ability to recognize there's an issue here, dissolve the issue and and create yeah. your own solution. I think that, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's really cool. Thank you. Uh, how are your relationships with your your exporters coming into you, or your people that catch your um, wild caught uh, fish? How is how is that start begin evolve? Do they sort of contact you say, hey, we've got ten thousand cardinal tetras, for example, we can provide this many on a regular basis, or do you have people going out to try and find um, the the exporters that are doing that? How does that relationship work with you so our that relationship um we are we are super loyal to our to our great vendors um maybe sometimes more than we should be <laughs> but how it happens is is we meet each other or we're recommended to each other um by by um colleagues within the industry um that that share our values about wanting to have sustainably raised or su sustainably collected fish, um, people that understand the, the value of, of the fish and don't ship with too high of mortality, um, they, they, that they have really decent business practices. And so um, we go and we visit them and we audit them and we actually audit our vendors on an annual basis. Wow. Um, we want to make sure that when we provide feedback to them of, of an animal health issue or of a if we have a continuing short count issue or, or something like that, that they are actually following through with that, with our, with our veterinarians recommendations or with uh, you know, some different packing methods we might recommend to them, things like that. But we want to make sure that, um, that they continue to hold our standards. Cool. Um, I've got a lot of questions to come through as far as sustainability goes and that kind of stuff. Um, but someone's just asked a question uh, is there a time where you don't send any fishes out, heat waves, storms, all that kind of stuff? Is there a alert that you go, we're not doing this? And how does that sort of system yeah. go? So, so that, um, I just lost you. That's so weird. There. Um, so we do send out fish when we can pack, we can pack for the, uh, for very cold or very hot but if there's a chance that the fish are going to get delayed or that the fish are going to be exposed to extreme temperatures, we won't pack. So my example for that would be shipping reptiles. And uh, because of the way that they have to be packed with, with um, access to, to outside air, I'm much more sensitive about how we pack those or where we send those to and when than I would be with fish where we can, you know, add it, ice packs or heat packs into, into a styrofoam box and control that temperature from here all the way to the, to the uh, store. Cool. On, on average, how long would travel times be leaving you to a store? Generally it's 12 hours, but we pack just in case because things do happen. We pack for 48 hours. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm fairly confident that I can get three days worth of shipping out of anything we send. Yeah. 
yeah. don't want it to go three days, would far yeah. rather it go overnight. Yeah. But yeah. confident that you can kind of get that if, if needs be, if yeah. things go wrong. Yeah, isn't it amazing? Like fish are so tough. Like I don't think people appreciate how some of the things that fish can go through and survive. It's pretty amazing. Mm. Mm. And we've had another question before we get on to the sustainability stuff. Uh, on such a massive scale, what happens with, with any fish that you need to cull? So at our distribution level, that calls happen calls happen at farm level, right? Yeah. And so that that's going to vary farm to farm if they're going to feed those out to other fish or or what they're going to do with them. Okay, so it's not really a, a thing that happens with at your point then. Yeah. No. All right. We do have, I mean, to to be transparent, of course, we do have the occasion when fish are so when they're so sick that we can't save them, and when that happens, our uh, our lab team will have to euthanize them according to the veterinary standards. And that's with a, an overdose of MS-222, which is a fish tranquilizer. Okay. So this question has come off the floor, but it definitely leads into where I'm, I was heading anyway. Uh, what protocols does your company have in place to ensure the fish you're importing and selling are sustainably produced and or caught? So like I was saying before, with that with that audit process and with our commitment to sustainability, um, we're actually going into the field to make sure that those things are happening. Like with, with marine fish, we're making sure that we have a short supply chain that we can actually identify the people that, that collected the fish where the transfer point transfer point is and, and the export station. So if it's you know, the longer the supply chain gets the the uh, cloudier that information is so do you go to the source and then obviously yeah. trace it back to yourself so that you know every step of the journey yeah good yeah. Cool. um so obviously sustainability and environmental consciousness is is important to you guys um what are you doing to promote that as as a general industry practice not so much or not as much as what you're doing but as a general everybody should potentially be getting on board with this yeah great question so i have been on the executive board of ornamental fish international for the past i don't know 15 years about 10 years ago we um we adopted a charter which has the has that language that each of us members agree to um to source fish in a sustainable and ethical manner and and honestly if be, the, by the type of that organization if uh if we're caught not doing that we are ejected from that organization wow just 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 um, like that no no warnings no if and buts if you're not doing it you're not doing it. there's a warning and it's only happened yeah. it's only happened a couple times and and those people aren't in business any longer Mm. That's, that's fantastic. It goes with saying because if you you know if you're preaching that you've got to go sustainable, but then not you know living out what you're preaching, then you've got to go because how otherwise you're you don't have any credibility. Right. Uh, you're also a major sponsor of Project Piaba. Uh, can you tell us um, a little bit about that? How you support them and and your involvement in in that yeah. project? So, um, so I went on those uh, one of those Project Piaba expeditions, and for me, it was uh, career changing. And I would have never thought that 
I had been of the mindset and I had the way I came up through the company was in the, in the buying realm. So, so that's, that's what I'm really good at. I'm really, really good at buying fish. And I had been of the mindset that we should be all tank raised by 2030, no matter what. Right. And, uh, um, and, and no going back because I just felt like, you know, the supply chains were poor and, and the, and the, the farm raised fish always live better. And, you know, and I had this whole, I had this whole story that I totally bought into until I went on that expedition. And I saw with my own eyes, what my, what my personal, um, buying is doing to the Amazon river. If I don't buy sustainably collected fish, those fishermen, um, have to log the Amazon, they have to log in the Amazon rainforest, or they have to gold mine, which releases arsenic into the water, or they have to cattle farm, which is also horrible for the river system, or they have to move into the, into the slums of Manaus, right? And that's as a direct result of my buying decisions. So I came back from that. Now you've heard the kind of water quality we have here, right? You turn on the faucet and rocks come out. Not so great for Rio Negro fish. So what we did is invested uh, $180,000 in two acclimation systems. So we um, are acclimating them from that, you know, 3.5 to 5.0 pH water that they're being collected in along, they go along that very long supply chain to get from, from the fisheries up to, up to Manaus to be shipped out to the rest of the world. Um, they need time to be, to be really acclimated. So we acclimate them up to 7.0 and we start, start them with, um, black worms or live food so we can get them eating mm -hmm. and then slowly transition them over a two week period to prepared foods until they're fully acclimated. They've, re they have restored their body mass and are ready to survive the rest of the supply chain. It's interesting that you say, uh, about, farm raised and, and, and that mindset because I was very much along the same lines of want to be buying off commercially raised fish as opposed to wild caught. It's a yeah. better option, blah, 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 for many years. And then the more people that we've spoken to that are involved in the sustainable harvest of fish, the more I go, well, actually, maybe, I rephrase it, a lot of cases the wild caught fish are a far better option than, yes. than the tank raised stuff. They are. Um, if you can remove the fact that you've taken away this animal from its wild environment and put it into a, a glass box, mm -hmm. the best part, it's, it's a far better option, full circle for everybody. Um, right. so it's interesting that you say right. that because it, it is better it's for the fish, right? In the, in the, in the Rio Negro, like the Cardinal Tetra has a 99% chance of perishing hmm. when, the, when the rivers <laughs> go back down versus it has a much better chance of thriving in a home aquarium. Yeah, 100%. Um, do you, when you're being offered fish, do you take everything and anything that's legally allowed to be obtained, obviously? Um, or do you go, look, I don't want a bar of these fish, they never sell, or these are too seasonal for us, or yeah. they don't fit into our, our model, or how does that buying work for you? So uh, that's not the easiest question right so okay. certainly when we deal with when we deal with chain stores it's a very finite number of of animals that we're dealing with it's generally entry level to intermediate level animals independent stores 
like to have rarer, more obscure fish. And they also are much better suited to deal with seasonality of fish. A chain store can't deal with seasonality. They can't handle the having their, you know, store set change four times a year, mm. right? It's got to be pretty standard. An independent store like will make room for a special yeah. fish. Mm, and yeah, then, yeah. Right. And so, so um, then around the legalities of the fish, being in Florida, uh, very sensitive to invasive species issues. So we can't have every fish that was there, that that is right. There are some fish we can't have in the United States, and then a, lo a longer list of fish that we can't have in Florida. Beyond yeah, yeah. that, beyond that, there are other fish that I don't carry, just because I don't think it's the right thing to do for the for mm -hmm. the fish or for the consumer. Yeah. Okay. What what's a couple of examples of of those sort of fish? So um, some of the bigger catfish, I think. Yeah. 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 yeah we we're very limited down here on what we're allowed to bring into the country, yeah. and often a lot of people, you know, put their finger in the ear, going, "This isn't good. This is bad." Blah blah blah. Very much on board with it. I think there's there's definitely some some animals that should not be in the trade whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, should not be going into home aquariums it's, and, and there's there's lots of them so it's it's yeah. good that there is people taking a stand on these just a hard line not yeah. not taking a bar of it so to speak and then there are fish that I only deal with you know very 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 occasionally because it's going to that specialty owner like last week or two weeks ago we had in a seha ray from from peru the last one i saw is probably 20 or 25 years ago because it gets to be a massive fish and this mm -hmm. one's going to a public aquarium. Of course, they have the ability to uh, to deal yeah. with that. But you know, yeah. it's not a fish that that is actually allowable for me as a consumer to own in Florida. Uh, we're not mm -hmm. allowed to, to own those freshwater rays. But we have, as a business, we have a special permit because we have the containment to to house it and ship it out of state but it's got to have permits that follow it the entire way uh, have you ever been involved in changing you know some fish like you just mentioned some fish are barred you know banned for for various mm -hmm. reasons have you ever been involved in changing that for yeah. specific species to make them more accessible and allowed you know would you be yeah, well, under the current administration um nobody has an appetite to allow more anything more into Florida. Right now, um, the, the state of Florida is trying to disallow a, a, a great deal of species or they're trying to create a white list of like similar to what is in Australia, right? Mm -hmm. And a, a list of allowable species. But in Australia, it was it was a, a nightmare. And for Florida, it would also be a nightmare for people that really love fish. We love variety and mm -hmm. being limited to the same to the same list of fish from now on is just not is not really tenable. Unfortunately, that kind of that kind of law promotes um, underground trading, and that's certainly not what we want to see. We want to see regulated trade. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, be, in Scotland, we've got beautiful soft water, but it gets so cold during the winter that yeah. most tropical species couldn't survive anyway. So we we've not got many restrictions on what right. we can keep at home. Um, but I know it's a big problem, especially for Cam in New Zealand. He's they're very restricted because of their climate and and their rules. But um, yeah, it's, it's something that, that interests me. It's like how the rules are decided for different parts of the world, and you know, yeah. 
if you're involved in managing to, to change that, that's it's quite, you know, I've yeah. spoken to a lot of people that have wanted to be able to change it, you know, Cam and people that watch the show, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to speak to somebody that's actually been in a position to change, it's quite cool. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I've been involved with a, a, a technical assistance group for Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission for the past two years, trying to just defend our right to to continue to, to have what we have in Florida and to allow mm-hmm. new species in. Because, yeah. you know, what they don't understand, and, and I think maybe Australia was the same way, they don't understand how many new species are, are yet to yet to be found, yet to be traded in. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my total stock list is something like 25,000 different, different species. 4,000 wow. of that is new within the past eight years, right? Really? That we wouldn't have had access to if they had put through a whitelist. Mm-hmm. And do you think that they'll be successful in getting a whitelist in the next maybe yeah. five, six years? Yeah. No, okay. no. no uh, fortunately, the uh, the uh, the fish keeping hobby, but is is active in fighting that. More importantly, the reptile keepers are very active in protecting mm-hmm. their rights to own their the animals of choice. Yeah, I suppose the rules. Um, you know, Florida's a a state that's got a lot of exotic pets. Um, mm-hmm. You know they're famous for the exotic pets, so it's not just the fish hobby that's going to be fighting for it. You're going to have the reptiles, you're going to have cats, and, and all sorts of other right. people all coming. And you can't just go after one element of the, the pet right. industry because exactly. it, it has to come under the one law. So if you restrict exactly. one, you would have to restrict them all, and so on. And you go after right. one, and the law come back to defend you. So exactly you know, right. Uh, you know, if they want to stop things from coming in, maybe we should stop all of these. We have a quarter million of people quarter million people a year moving to Florida now. Wow. After COVID. It's because, you know, Florida was a great place to go through COVID. Yeah. And, you know, we got we got out of our house pretty early. But you know, all these people are bringing all their pets. Mm. Yeah. And uh <laughs> and and we don't want to make criminals out of people who are just, no. you know, just good pet owners. We yeah. want to we want to prevent them from releasing their animals into the wild, and I think that's where our efforts should go. Absolutely. Do you, um, as a company, have anything in place that educates people? Um, yeah. Yeah. What's that about? So, what we do, uh, a couple different things we do is um, we have become invested in a in a project here called Habitatitude, which provides messaging on the bags to mm-hmm. not release animals into the wild. And okay. the retailers get that also. But then in addition to that, we deal with, um, we support Pet Amnesty Day, which is where people can can relinquish their pet without getting into trouble if they happen to own mm-hmm. something they couldn't have, right? They can release it to the state and we help with, with rehoming those animals. Um, and then we speak around with, with the hobby groups in uh in in florida and around the country mm-hmm. about that too as well and the yeah. hobby group great the hobby groups here are so great about helping people uh rehome animals that that people can't care for any longer mm-hmm. what so what would the procedure be then for if somebody was to approach you um on amnesty day or on any other day with um a, a species that they're not allowed to keep and it's not permitted in florida for example yeah what would be the process have you got some day out of state that would come and take it away or, or do you 
So the, the, the florist has people that will come and get the animals and then we help them rehome them. We can, we can take the animal in here and ship it out of state or, or however they want to, because uh, they right. have a long list of people who want to adopt animals that have the proper permitting. Oh, good. Yeah. That's really good. Well, well um, how big is the underground or the black market for the pet trade over there like? I don't think it's no, all that know. big here. I don't know. I don't. I. I think I know clearly there is some. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I honestly don't know. Uh, I. I don't have a good idea about it. But when Facebook allowed trading of live animals, it would yep. there was you could see it a lot more. And now I don't see it, so I don't know. Yeah, it's a catch twenty two on that because. Facebook are trying to do what I believe they think is best for animals, but then it's yeah. closed down the the visibility of it at the same time. Yeah. If that makes sense, yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, that um, what what the uh, government here, the internet crimes they're going after. The first major crime that they go after is um, is uh, pedophiles, and the second major crime is illegal tra illegal trade of wildlife. They have crazy web crawlers. Crazy. Of all crimes to go after, that is yeah. that is a, wow. Yeah. That, that's mind blowing. I would have yeah. obviously it's important, but I wouldn't have thought it'd be right right at the peak of the list. Wow. That, that I think that probably shows it's it's probably quite strong and, and, and probably mm -hmm. quite prevalent if you yeah. know where to look, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Wow. certainly there's a lot of sensitivity around it. Yeah, um, you've brought up COVID a, a couple of times. How how did COVID affect your business? Did it because um, obviously you've got live animals to look after, and yeah. I don't know how it worked over America, but we were we were locked down for a couple of months. We couldn't really go anywhere. How right. did that interfere with things coming in, things going out? You've got mouths to feed, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that was um, that was hard. <laughs> I hope we never have to go through that again. So what oh, happened? Yeah is that um, customers stopped receiving animals because they had no idea what retail was going to look like as we went into quarantine. I lost 75% of my business in 48 hours. Wow. It was huge. hard. It was hard. And we, de we devised a solution that we didn't know if it would work or not because nobody knew how long we were going to be in quarantine, mm -hmm. where, um, where we brought in our staff on a minimal basis. It was something like 12 hours a week to care for the animals and to pack the animals, the small amount of animals that were being shipped out. And then we paid out the rest in unemployment. So the people never went without any of their pay. And we kept their health insurance intact and everything. And because we didn't know, you don't know mm -hmm. what's going to happen. And, it, you know, and so we were shut down hard for six weeks. And then customers needed to have small animals and birds because people desperately needed pets because they didn't have other human interaction, yeah. right? People need to have these animals for their mental health. And so, and so it went from, and it's like somebody opened up the spigot. We went from zero to a hundred <laughs> within, within four weeks after that six weeks. And, uh, and, and then we couldn't get the number of animals that people wanted. There was, that it, you know, if it slithered or or flew or swam, we could sell it. So we sold some of the ugliest fish I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
but you know, and and it made people happy. And it it was it's hard to run a fish house with with uh, you know with curtains to keep people separate from each other and people wearing gloves yeah. and was and hand sanitizer and it was just bizarre. So yeah, I'm glad that's over. I remember over here in Scotland, all the fish shops were able to remain open yeah. um, throughout the entire time um, and garden centres yeah. um, because it was good for your mental health. So right. these were the places, they became social hubs yeah. throughout the entire yeah. time. And it was it was really interesting um, how each you know different place devised a, a method of working around right. people's fears and restrictions to continue, um, and I found, personally, I found that everybody really benefited financially in the fish trade um, during that time. Yeah, it was um, tremendous. It was yeah, tremendous. It was you know, we saw at the retail level, though, the, the stores that had live animals absolutely thrived. They mm -hmm. they developed, you know, the buy online, pick up, pick up, curb pickup or whatever, or, yeah. or um, and especially the independent stores they really they really powered through it and uh and sold more than they ever had the stores that didn't carry live animals did not thrive because mm -hmm. customers want to see live animals they don't want it they don't go to to view the dog food aisle no mm -hmm. and they can buy that on you don't need to go to the pet store to buy that you know the mm -hmm. pet stores for pets and ultimately it's the experience yeah. just as much as the product right mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you the amount of times that people just come into my shop. Just, I just want to have a look at what fish you've got, and it's it's and it's just an exercise of looking at the fish. They fill their cup and they go, "Cool, have a nice day, see you later," and, and that's great, you know. Right, and mm -hmm. there's a compression yeah. area. <laughs> yeah. yeah, cool. Look at look at how bright and colourful they are, and, and you know, everyone's moods get swim swept up, swift upside down, and away we go. So yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, you think during or after COVID, more people were setting up aquariums? Oh, yeah. Due to, due to yeah, that? Yeah. yeah, people people bought aquariums, and and it created. It, the great thing is, this happened around the world. It created a whole new generation of fish keepers. Totally agree. Yeah, yeah. couldn't agree more. I'm I'm absolutely on board with that. So yeah, you know, I yeah. Um. You mentioned chain stores and independents. Uh, roughly, what's your breakdown of of what you supply? Is it you know ninety percent chains, a little bit independents, or are you? Um, no, uh, you know, and I had these numbers in front of me a while ago. So it's um, I have my my pie is pretty actually it's pretty even. It's like um, it's a little bit over a quarter independents. We sell like a thousand independents a week, and then and then we have the other three major chains. So. Um, yeah. yeah. Sure. So, so where I'm at, we've got me being a, a fish shop, we've got two independent pet stores and then a big chain pot store type scenario. Yeah. Is it that sort of ratio around various areas, states in America, or is there a lot more chains to the few independents, pet there's shops to a few independents? Yeah. With the, the independent stores, it seems as if that's kind of a dying breed here. Like it's yeah. um, there because they haven't developed some succession planning. Generally, with independent stores here, if they can't pass it on to their child, they shut it down when they're ready to retire. Uh, okay. So very much family run. Yeah. 
Yeah. When you are buying your fish, are you looking for minimum quantities of things? As in, you've got this potential to buy, I'm just going to say a grey pen, but you can only buy three of them, good as gold, I'm going to take them because they're ridiculously rare, or you go, well, actually, it's not really worth my time only getting three in a box, I need more. Is there, how does that work from your business point of view? <laughs> it depends on what the fish is. I want to, yeah. um, um, there's no easy answer to that, right? So it's like, if it's a regular staple item, I want a full box lot. If it's something mm -hmm. like if it's something rare that that I need to own because I need to see it, right? I'll buy one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I'm I'm imagining if because you're going through millions of fish a week, a minimum order of neon tetras, for example, is going to be in the several thousands as opposed to several hundreds. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, have you uh, personally um, visited any of the collecting oh, yeah. spots? Yeah. How do you find that? Um, I miss doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it's one of my favorite things. I think that is one of the things that make makes me think that I really have the best job in the world. Mm -hmm. To know the people that are collecting them, the people that are that are shipping them, even the the guys, the freight forwarder guys that are handling those products. Yeah. Um, but to understand is it's really it changes. I think it changes how you how you handle those and how you acclimate them and how you treat them when you understand. The bio, the the ecology of where exactly those fish are coming from, what kind mm -hmm. of substrate they have, what kind of if there's leaf litter, if there's branches, if there's what or if it's rocky, so that you can better settle them down and, and handle them when you when you're holding them. Yeah. I think that's that's quite key, working out where they've actually come from and how they've come from particular areas and what's what they live around to make them comfortable and settled in it's right. um i think that's probably forgotten a little bit in general hobbyists but i think it's yeah. something that is beginning to make a bit of a insurgence back yeah. into the hobby with no people trying to limit yeah in the black water obviously yeah. is something yeah. that's gonna open in people's eyes uh, and shining the light on a natural habitat is okay in an aquarium it's okay to have a it looks like a dirty fish tank or because that's what the fish wants and when you give that to the fish you, the fish looks 10 times more beautiful than it would in a stereo crystal clear aquarium you know the, the neon tetra is a perfect example of that exactly there's nothing like a neon tetra if you put it under actual sunlight mm. it changes changes how fish look yeah i mean even like if you get an aquarium that gets maybe an hour of sunlight every morning, so it's mm -hmm. not there all day long, it just catches right. that morning sun. Right. If you come down and you see it in the morning and it swims through that little kind of yep. that light, it's beautiful. Yep. And that colour, it, it enhances the colour, not just yeah, when yeah. it's in that light, but constantly if it's getting that, that natural yeah. way, it's good. Yeah, it really does. I think one of the most beautiful fish, I know, I know this is like, it's just silly that I think this, but the, a red tail, I saw a red tail hemiotis come right out of the black water, and I was like, I've never seen such a fish. It was so stunning. The, the red against the silver, and it was so bright. It was like, it was looked like blood on the mm. fish. It was gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, we've, we've spent a bit of time talking about softwater fish, Amazonian fish, but we haven't discussed anything to do with the riff lakes, mm -hmm. assuming that you deal with a lot of riff lake fish as well. Yeah. What, yeah. what would you... Uh, a lot more, a lot more than, than Tanganyika, though. Tanganyika yeah. here is... Um, it seems to be it seems to be one of more of those niche um, areas where you have like one out of a hundred people might keep Tanganyika, okay. because they're they can be harder to ship, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. I, I I know what you mean. I would suggest that Malawi sell significantly more than Tanganyika, and I've right. always looked at it because Malawis are the bright, colorful, right. Right. vibrant Tanganyika right. and smart ones. Yeah, the shapes and intricacies and bits and people. So, like, you kind of filter your way into that, if that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. So I can I can imagine that being quite 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 true. What sort of breakdown do you have as far as riff lake sales compared to like Amazonian fish type sales? Is it fifty fifty or how's that market riff lake, over there? Probably riff lake is higher than Amazonian species. Well, that's yep. not true. That's not true. I'm thinking if you know if I'm thinking Tetris alone, but if I get if I add in everything like you know the cardinals, cardinals of course with you know the, the giant quantity and uh, and rumminos and corridors, the different kinds of corridors is yeah. So yeah, that Amazon fish will blow it out of the water. Yeah. Are you having uh, reflect? fish wild caught or are they sustainably farmed or how does because obviously there's a lot that goes on conversation about amazonian um projects and stuff like that is it is there a similar things happening for the for malawi and tanganyika and victoria or is that not quite as thought about not, not quite well as as yeah i think project piaba really is is the um poster child for sustainable fisheries for any other fishery throughout the world yeah. because it meets yeah. uh, 15 of the 16 different um, marks for sustainability. So there's nothing like it in the Rift Lakes that I'm aware of. We, the majority of the fish that we buy that are Rift Lake cichlids are um, tank raised and they're tank raised all over the world, Florida, Taiwan, you know, Thailand, uh, Europe. We buy occasionally some, some wild collected, but, um, couple times a year yeah yeah so from my understanding at least the general consensus here in New Zealand that uh reflect cichlids that have got a initial point of Germany so um, raised in Germany are of a really high high standard high quality and, and over here they they're the ones that fetch the bigger money yeah are you finding the quality coming out of different regions better than others do you obviously you do a lot of quality control you go well these guys aren't actually providing what I need is there a region that provides a better fish than others? Tank raised. Um, well, tank raised. Uh, Europe almost always provides a better fish than than what we get out of Asia. But it's, you know, quality over quantity, right? They're they're yep. raising for they're raising for better genetics, where Asia is raising for volume. So yeah, mm, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I see in the background that you've got the George Farmer aquascaping book. <laughs> Yeah. Ooh, it is. We've all got that, but that's a good book, yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, aquascaping is not new to the hobby. It's always been there, but the yeah. refined modern model of what planet tanks look like, aquascaping is a fairly new 
element mm-hmm. to the hobby. Do you think mm-hmm. that's changed the way people buy fish? Because now there's no. a for many not, people that maybe focus on the plants. Not so much here. Aquascaping is still a very fringe thing here. It is mm-hmm. um, the uh, Aquatic Gardeners of America is, is a good group, but it's you know heavily underrepresented for mm-hmm. the number of people that that keep aquariums. It's just, just like it's still kind of a new thing where people haven't really grasped the concept. And well, I don't know that people haven't grasped the concept. It's not well represented at the retailers, and so people don't know that that there yeah. is. A- it's still very niche. Um, right. I mean, America produces a lot of really, really skilled aquascapers, and on mm-hmm. the world stage, um, some of them are within the top ten. You know, in some of the contests. So, um, it's a shame that it's not as popular as it should be. Um, but um, yeah, I think in the UK, obviously, we're a much smaller fish community, if you want to call it that. But um, it has changed because a lot of the shops now stock um, nano fish. A lot, you know, nano fish wasn't even they weren't called nano fish. They were just tetras or smaller fish. But <laughs> and now it's, you know it's created that whole genre of tiny fish yeah. uh, that people buy specifically to complement the plants. So yeah, I wonder yeah. if it's something that will nano, happen. In the nano fish here is just is just fish to go in the tiny aquariums. The, yeah. the part of it is. is generally people don't know it yet yeah and, and we only see it really at um some of the club events certainly at the aquatic gardeners events mm-hmm. and but then at some of the other some of the other club events we'll see that and at some of the um industry trade shows they'll have a demonstration to try to invite more retailers into that space yeah cool i was going to say i've, I've found that nano fish or micro fish seems to be increasing here in new zealand might yeah. be because that's where I'm kind of positioning myself for my business, so I'm noticing it more. Yeah. Or it could be that it's, you know, every part of the world has different ways that they do aquariums and yeah. different trends and different thoughts, and it might that's just right. be a New Zealand type of vibe as opposed to, to what's happening over yeah. in, in America. Yeah. yeah, well, I think it's just for us, for in the America, it was just as a result of what aquariums were popular within within the stores. So we try yeah. to, you know, try to give them what the consumers need to fill those tanks up. Yeah, it makes sense. Do you also um, keeping on the, the the shift? Sorry, Cam. Uh, just keeping on the topic, uh, smaller fish. Um, the rising cost in energy for a lot of people um, yeah. in running fish tanks and fish rooms is obviously on the increase, and that could be possibly affecting the size of aquariums the average fish keeper is going for. Um, this, one of our viewers has mentioned, um, oh, he's talking in, in the UK, but his costs are all well, more than doubled in the space of two months. The UK's energy went crazy, um, but people will be buying smaller tanks because they still get the same enjoyment out of an aquarium in the home, yeah. but a yeah. smaller tank means smaller fish. And, and, and that, right. that yeah, and in that, inter- that interesting because we're only seeing that messaging. Or we're seeing we're seeing anti-industry messaging saying don't buy a tank because they they it costs too much in energy right you're being you're actually being a bad environmentalist if you own it at a fish tank I've seen that messaging coming out of Europe but that's the only place. Is it actually happening? Yeah. Wow. I know. Wow, that's mind blowing. (laughs) I I, okay. What's that being funded by? Is there organisations? 
Yeah, organizations that don't want people to own animals. Uh, okay. Yeah. 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 Cool. Are you are you guys in the um, the plant trade as well? Are you solely on fish. Yes. Yeah. I as well. Yeah. Cool. Um, stems, spotted tissue cultures, and yes. what sort of a yes. segment of your uh, business? We do all of those, and for us, it's it's a very small percentage of our business. It's less than one percent of our total business. Wow. Do you um, produce them yourself, or do you sell? like another brand or yeah, we buy and sell we buy yeah. and sell we don't we don't grow anything ourselves yeah, yeah. So well. yeah. wow um that's all that i've got as far as question wise goes <laughs> um i did have a couple others but they've just disappeared as we've been talking i didn't write them down fast enough unfortunately yeah um, and, and just for the record to clear up why i was late um normally obviously i'm in in the uk cans in new zealand Cam's yeah. had a daylight savings time change that you never told yeah. me about. So I'm Sorry. currently one, one hour behind schedule. So I would have had more questions. I was in the middle of sitting down to write questions <laughs> and then I went on our platform and I've seen the live. I'm like, oh, and that's why I've jumped on. And so that's yeah. why I'm like, I do apologize. Yeah. <laughs> well, you guys can hit me up at any time you think, think of more questions. I am at your service. Yeah. Um, so we'd like to finish off our copy dates with a quick school of six questions so they are very short and sweet they're not okay. there to challenge you so let's rock and roll with them <laughs> okay. are we alone in the universe i'm sorry are we alone in the universe are we alone in the universe i think not cool if you are doing a coin toss are you heads or tails i'm heads cool paper scissors rocks what's your first move uh, rocks tea or coffee coffee Yes. If you could have a meal with absolutely anyone alive or dead at any point in the world, who would that be? Dalai Lama. Cool. And what is a unicorn fish for you, whether you want to see it, want to own it, want to have it in your facility? I want, it, I want to be able to have the right to breed Scleropagis formosa because it is currently illegal to do so in the United States. Cool. That's a fantastic answer. That is all that I have. Uh, thank you very much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Like I said, I know you're very busy and to be looking after the amount of fish and people that you do. This has been um, a real pleasure. So thank you very much for giving up your time and being with us today. Y'all have a good weekend. You, you too. too. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Have a good one, Sam. Happy fish keeping. Catch you later. Bye.